0: I would be lahim in a shaitan or regime, smell her Rahman or Rahim, Alhamdulillah, her Rabbil Alameen, was allah, who Allah say, Yidina, Mohammedin, Wali, her Tayibina Tahirin, Laham Salih, Allah, Mohammed, Wali, We continue our examination of the biography of the Messenger of God, Sallallahu Alaihi Wali, in Mecca, and we reach. A very challenging time for the Prophet and Bani Hashim and most Muslims. The Quraysh realize that nothing is working, they tried every way to stop the Prophet from preaching the religion of Islam, they failed. The Prophet is getting stronger, Islam is getting stronger by the second. So they come up with a new strategy they gather at Dar al-Nadwa which was a house in Mecca, they used to gather in that house for high-level meetings and they're developing a new strategy. Now the Bani Hashim were still powerful, they realized that if we mess with Bani Hashim a civil war might break out so if any one tribe commits acts of aggression against the Bani Hashim, there, this might get out of control and there might be a civil war. So they come up with this idea and strategy. To avoid having any single tribe responsible, they make an agreement that all of us Meccan tribes, we shall boycott Beni Hashem. We shall impose a full embargo, boycott, on all members of bani hashim what is bani hashim going to do they can't go to war with every tribe that's not possible so that's a good way to either contain islam or to force them to uh, relinquish their faith and come back to our religion and be pagans so they come up with this collective boycott they tell the muslims look either you follow us stop on this stop with this new religion or hand us over Muhammad and we'll, we'll deal with him, but you can't continue like that, if you continue like this we shall impose a full embargo on some Muslims and specifically the Bani Hashim and we'll make you starve to death, so this is serious, we'll make you starve to death and no one will be responsible in particular because all tribes came up with this idea, they sign a document 40 of them, 40 high-ranking members of Quraysh, they sign a document to impose this ban. These are the points they mention in the document. Number one, there shall be no more marrying between the tribes. So no person from Bani Hashim is allowed to marry a woman from another tribe and No man from another tribe will marry a woman from Bani Hashim. That's it. There's a complete ban on marriages. No marriages from now on. That's number one. Number two, do not sell them anything or buy anything from them. Complete economic embargo. Number three, don't make any sort of deal or agreement with them. Number four, let's look at the opponents of Muhammad let's support his opponents in any way possible so if there's anyone from anywhere who has enmity with Muhammad let's support them let them try to bring him down so they gather in Daran Nadwa 40 high-ranking men and they actually signed this document and they agreed that whoever violates this document this you know a binding document that we're signing on will be killed So it was serious, no tribe would dare break this agreement because they would be killed. They agreed on that. It was drafted by by a Meccan man called Mansur ibn Akrama. He's the one who drafted this document, meaning he wrote it. Now they all sealed it with their personal seals. At the time, if you were high ranking, you had a personal seal. In order to prove that this is your signature, they all sealed it, these 40 men they sealed this document what they did initially they took this document they hung it on the Kaaba for everyone to witness and see but then after a while after a while they were concerned you know what if a thief comes and he steals the document we need to protect it somewhere safe so they take the document to the house of Abu Jahl's mother Abu Jahl had a mother they decided to take this document to the house of his mother and she would keep it there in somewhere that is safe and well protected, completely sealed. No one can open it. They make this agreement. This was in the year six to seven after the birth of the Prophet. So we're talking about six to seven years after the Prophet receives revelation. This incident happens. Abu Talib when he hears about this document he orders all members of Bani Hashim to go in Shi'b Abi Talib, the valley of Abu Talib. The valley of Abu Talib was an important piece of land right across from Masjid al-Haram. It was an important piece of land that the Bani Hashim had inherited from their grandfathers. There's a long story behind how they got that piece of land but it was the the place to be in Mecca. The prime location in Mecca was just outside of Masjid Al-Haram. There was, you know, a valley right by Masjid Al-Haram called Sha'b Abi Talib, the valley of Abu Talib. The Prophet's house with Lady Khadija was there. The Prophet himself, he was born there. So it was an important area for Bani Hashim. It was the hub for Bani Hashim. By the way, today, you know the authorities in Mecca have completely destroyed that valley and the house of the Prophet sallallahu The last time I went to Hajj, there was a market called Souq al-Layl, some of you may have gone to it, Souq al-Layl they call it over there. Um, it's one of those bazaars that are very close to Masjid al-Haram, that was still in Sha'b Abi Talib. But I think now they've demolished it and they've constructed you know high-rise buildings over there or most of the valley has been annexed to Masjid Al-Haram. When they expanded Masjid Al-Haram, you know that expansion included the valley of Abu Talib. So Abu Talib, he commands the members of Bani Hashim that this document is aimed at us, it specifically mentions Bani Hashim to be boycotted, so let's all gather here, let's be close to each other so we keep each other safe. The only person from Bani Hashim not to attend and go with them was who, obviously? Abu Lahab, the brother of Abu Talib, the uncle of the Prophet, because he was one of the pagan mobilizers against the Prophet. So obviously he was not included in this deal because he was amongst those who were instigating against the Prophet. Yes. Uh, Abbas Abbas ibn Abdul Muttalib, even though at this time he was a pagan, but we don't have indications that Abbas took any measures against the Prophet. He was neutral, he didn't support the Prophet like Abu Talib, neither was he anti you know Islam and persecuting Muslims and condemning the Prophet like Abu Lahab so maybe he was in the valley there are indications he probably was in the valley but he was just not involved you know he was neutral because the historical accounts tell us all of Bani Hashim were in the valley except Abu Lahab so maybe we can deduce from that that he was also um, you know in the valley or possibly but well, maybe you just had the freedom to come and go. It's also possible he was not in the valley, so we don't exactly know. But he was mainly neutral. You say, Abu Sikham, Bani Hashim? No, Abu Lahab. Oh, yeah. yeah, Abu Sufyan is from Bani Umayyah The 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 rivals of Bani Hashim. Abu Lahab was the only member of Bani Hashim who did not join them in Shab Abi Talib because he was a, a disbeliever, and the Quran had already condemned him. So Abu Sufyan, no, he wasn't from Bani Hashim. So this Shi'ab Abi Talib is just by the mountain of Abu Qabays, which overlooks the Kaaba. And this boycott continued for three years. For three years, there was a severe embargo on those early Muslims, specifically from the members of Bani Hashim. They assigned monitors, the pagans, to see if anyone's breaking the boycott, is anyone delivering to them food assistance, they would actually assign monitors, spies, round the clock to make sure no one violates this treaty. Abu Talib also assigned monitors to let Muslims know if there's a sudden attack, someone comes trying to kill the Prophet, at least we know, we can prepare. So there were monitors from both sides. Abu Talib had placed monitors for the safety of Muslims, the pagans had implanted spies and monitors in order to see if anyone breaks the treaty. So how did they survive during those three years in such persecution? Remember none of them can work, you can't buy, you can't sell, you can't work, you're stuck in a valley and remember when we say valley it wasn't like this big valley, it's just a a piece of property by Masjid al-Haram. So how did they survive now we know why the Prophet sallallahu states Islam was built on the sword of Ali and what the wealth of Khadija it's the wealth of Lady Khadija that saved the Bani Hashim and those early Muslims in fact it was during those three years that her wealth finished because now nobody can work there is a complete embargo and Bani Hashim were not rich Abbas the uncle of the Prophet he, he was richer than the other uncles but Beni Hashim were not known to be rich so their only source of wealth and funding really during those three years was the wealth of Lady Khadija and that's why to honor Lady Khadija for all this wealth later when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave the land of Fedek to the Prophet he instructs the Prophet in the Holy Qur'an, Surah al Isra, verse 26 and give your nearest of kin, meaning your daughter Fatima, haqqa, the right, the Prophet tells his daughter Fatima alayhi salam that your, your mother Khadija through her wealth she sacrificed a lot for the religion of Islam and I and Jibra'il has commanded me to pay her back so I'm giving the land of Fadek to you, remember it was a very, uh, you know, uh, highly valued piece of land, very expensive piece of land. It would generate 120,000 golden dinars every year. That was a lot of money. You could buy a sheep with one dinar. So you do the math. Today a sheep is about hundred to two hundred dollars, multiply that by 120,000 sheep. That's a lot of money, we're talking about millions of dollars in today's money. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commands the Prophet, give the land of Fadak to Fatima to honor her mother Khadijah. Why? Because she was the only surviving inheritor of Lady Khadijah. She didn't have any other surviving children at the time. Lady Fatima was the only surviving child of Lady Khadijah. So Jibrael says to the Prophet, now you've become rich because the Prophet was poor his entire life. So he couldn't pay back Khadijah. Allah tells him, now you've got a piece of land, give it to Fatima." Where did this piece of land come from? This piece of land, after the Battle of Khaybar, there was a war with the Jews who broke the treaty with the Prophet, they conspired against Muslims. After the Battle of Khaybar, the Muslims became victorious. There was a Jewish tribe right by Khaybar, they owned the land of Fadak. They also conspired against the Prophet, they broke the treaty. When they saw the Muslims gained victory over the Jews of Khaybar they made a deal with the Prophet. They told him look we're sorry, we broke the treaty, however we don't want to fight, don't kill us, don't fight us. We'll give you this piece of land and spare us. I remember the Prophet never wanted to kill people so when people wanted to compromise even though they had blood on their hands because they conspired with the... Uh, pagans in the battle of Ahzab, Muslims got killed because of their conspiracy. The Prophet said okay, I'll make a deal with you, so they gave him that land. Now according to Islamic law, if the Prophet receives a piece of land without a fight, without a battle, Muslims have no right in it. Yes, if there is a war, if there is a battle, like pagans fight us somewhere and we conquer their land, right, then the fighters from the Muslims have a share of that land, it's like the spoils of war, they get a share of it but when the Prophet is given a piece of land without a war, peacefully he was given a land, according to Islamic law in the Quran the Prophet solely owns the land so no Muslims had a right in that land, it was solely to the Prophet and he gave it to Lady Fatima and of course we know what happened to that land after the coup happened after the Prophet and the Caliphs they took the land from Lady Fatima. Fedek was more uh, was more of an emblem. It was more symbolic than it was um, literal, uh, because we do know that uh, I believe it was Harun al Rashid. He tells the al Kalam, um, "I'll give you back Fadak." He's like, "You wouldn't want to do that." He's like, "Why?" He's like, "Because it starts with Africa." All and the earth is Fadak. It goes down to yeah, Caspian um, Sea and so on and so forth. So, do you think that um, there has been enough of an emphasis in Islamic literature of the symbolic nature of Fadak? Fedak, of course, was more symbolic than just a piece of land that Lady Fatima was asking for. In fact, Ibn Abul Hadid al-Mu'tazili, uh, a Mu'tazili Sunni scholar who has a commentary on al nah- Balagha, he says, once I asked my Sunni teacher, I told him, why was Abu Bakr being so stubborn? He could have just given her the land of Fadak. I mean, why that insistence? He said, no, you've missed the point. Fatima was asking for fedak as a prelude to asking for the caliphate because if she would have come in front of all Muslims made her case and Abu Bakr gives her fedek and she's truthful in her claim the next day she would have come okay now you've accepted my claim you see me as truthful give up the Khilafah now she would have brought new claims for the Khilafah so it was just actually an effort to reclaim the khilafah. So yes, definitely, fedak is symbolic. But remember, at the end of the day, it was also a personal violation of the family of the Prophet. You know, when you steal a piece of land, that in itself in Islam is theft, in addition to its symbolic, uh, you know, status. And remember, the main reason why they took fedak, aside from, you know, denying them the khilafa, because fedak generated so much money, that would have allowed the al-Bayt to actually gain supporters and resist the new government. So how do you silence your opposition? Take away their means and when the people know that Ali and Fatima don't have that means, they really don't care. That's why Umar ibn Khattab tells Abu Bakr, he's the one who actually tells him to take Fedek. he tells him look people are the slaves of this world, they run after money. If people know Fatima and Ali command Fadak, many of them might support them in hopes of getting something from that land but if you take that away from them nobody will be interested in supporting Imam Ali and Fatima. So obviously it is symbolic maybe in our literature some of them focus on it as a personal claim by Lady Fatima in in his work on Fadak, yes. Fadak for He has a beautiful work, Fadak in history. He does examine that. So honestly, if it's about a piece of land, Allah Subhanahu wa Taala has honored the Ahlul Bayt with all of this existence. You know what is a piece of land? Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib alayhi salam in Nahjul Balagha says, "What <laughs> Fadak? What do you think I'm going to do with a piece of land? We the Ahlul Bayt are above any piece of land. In any way, Allah Subhanahu in any case, Allah Subhanahu wa Taala honored. Lady Fatima to honor her mother, Lady Khadija. It was Lady Khadija's wealth that actually kept all these people surviving during that time. Now, yes. So,
1: I've also read the hadith of uh, Imam al Qadim and Harun Rashid's exchange. Then, how do we understand? That just that, is the
0: land his faith? during his time you know he wasn't like those Umayyad vicious rulers so yes he did give that land back to Imam al-Baqir but remember at the time first of all that land did not have the value it used to have it was an agricultural land it would produce a lot by that time it had lost its status Um, It was probably even neglected due to the political crises that ensued. Um, So yes, he did temporarily give it back to the Imam Alayhi But once the Abbasid government rose to power, you know, they quickly recaptured that land from the Ahlul Bayt. So that land was required in those early days to create an opposition to ask for the Khilafah. When you want to give it back a hundred years later, what's the point? What do you want to do with that piece of land now? Right.
1: But then we would understand it then as just that geographical piece of land which was given to the Prophet. That's all that was given back to Imam
0: al-Babr. Yeah, nothing um, more than that, the, of the course. Definition of the cabin, yes. starts in Africa. Exactly. Which means he was basically telling him it's the Khilafa. Yes. When he tells him all the way from Africa to China, that means um, look.
1: It's wherever the Muslims have reached. Exactly.
0: It's the Khilafa which you have stolen from us. That's what he was telling him, yes. So you
1: mentioned that land
0: of No, no, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveals verse 26 of Surah al-Isra in Medina. Yeah. Remember Surah al-Isra is Mecchi but this verse even according to Sunni scholars is a Medini verse. Allah commands the Prophet to give Fadak to Fatima. So in the Qur'an... I mean... No, no, Allah doesn't mention the name Fatima, Allah says your near relative, the al your nearest relative. Well, who was the nearest relative of the Prophet? Fatima, his daughter, right? Yes. Allah tells him, give your nearest relative Fadak. They're right. And the historians and the scholars, even Sunni sources, tell us the Prophet gave Fadak to Fatima then to honor her mother Khadija. Then
1: why did the Umar and Abu Bakr do that? Like if it's mentioned in the Quran, why didn't the people
0: like realize that? Well, the name of Fatima is not mentioned. Allah generally speaks about it. Because they claimed, they came and claimed, they're like, look, this belonged to the Prophet. You don't have proof that he gave it to you. Even though she did bring proof, they rejected the evidence. Imam Ali, we don't accept his, him as a witness. Uh, um Ayman, whom the Prophet says she's one of the women of heaven, they rejected her. In fact, she even had a document. They ripped that document. They claimed the only way you could get this is through inheritance. And the prophet said, "We prophets don't leave inheritance. They forged the hadith, or a meaning of the hadith, in order to deny her that right." But also, say, didn't you just mention that land that is um, that is received through war? Could they have used that
1: like excuse?
0: Well, it was very clear to everyone there was no war involved. So they claimed that the prophet would use this land for the Muslims. Now why did they say that? Lady Fatima, what did she do during those three years that she owned the land? What did she do with it? She would take some of it for her yearly expenses. The Prophet would take some for his yearly expenses. She would give up the rest to the Muslims. So the Muslims were already accustomed to getting benefits from this land. This made it easier on Abu Bakr to falsely claim that oh see it belonged to the Muslims. Well, the Muslims were benefiting because Fatima was being charitable with it. Not because they owned it. Otherwise, there was no war involved. How did the Muslims own it? Mm-hmm. The Holy Quran is very, very clear that if there is no war involved, it belongs to the Prophet. But they rejected it. You know, they'll come up with any fabrication to reject that. Yes? Um, so
1: the Battle of Khaibar, uh, is that the battle uh, in Surah 9, verse 5?
0: Surah 9, verse 5. Can you read the verse? No, 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 that's not about Khaybar, this is about the Mushrikeen who violated the Treaty of Hudaybiyah and they continued killing and persecuting Muslims. Allah Subhanahu wa ta'ala says after the sacred months, you know, they're in an act of war with you so now kill them because Allah Subhanahu wa ta'ala told the Prophet make a treaty, no war. The Prophet honored the treaty, they broke the treaty. Then they started killing Muslims. Allah ta'ala says, let's respect the sanctity of this month. After the sanctity of this month, then those who are at war with you, then kill them. No, this is not about Khaybar. There is another verse about Khaybar. Allah ta'ala is talking about the unbelievers. min If you look up this word, Allah ta'ala is saying how you know, Allah drove them out of their forts from Khaybar. Yes, in Surah Al-Ahzab. So that happened in the seventh year of Hijrah, this was after the verse which you quoted. Now Lady Khadija a.s. is spending from her wealth, when her wealth finishes, it runs out, they start eating grass, desert plants, just to keep themselves surviving. In fact, situation, the situation got so bad, children would starve would literally starve. The pagans would hear children crying out of starvation and hunger. That's how bad it got in the valley of Abu Talib. Those pagans who would hear, some of them would feel happy, rejoiced. Yeah, Muhammad and his people deserve this. See, they didn't listen to us, now they're starving to death. While other pagans who had a better heart, they felt saddened. You know, kids are starving, come on. You know, we're being very cruel towards the Bani Hashim. So there were some who would sympathize but remember they did not want to violate the document which they signed on. Now the Muslims wouldn't dare leave this land, this valley, except in two months. The month of Rajab you had the Umrah where people came from all over the Arabian Peninsula to do their Umrah. The Muslims were were allowed under very strict circumstances to come to Masjid al-Haram and do their Umrah. And also in Dhul-Hajj at the time of Hajj. They would come and do their Hajj. Now this presented the Muslims a small window of opportunity to do some business. So what did the pagans do? And Abu Jahl, he was the leader of this movement, they would go and announce in Masjid Al-Haram by the Sa'i, any newcomer who would come, oh people don't do business with Bani Hashim, if you want to sell them anything we'll pay double what Bani Hashim would pay, just don't sell them. They inflated the prices so that Bani Hashim could not buy anything, buy or sell anything. That's how bad it got. They were will willing to pay double and triple to those visitors who would come just so they would deny Bani Hashim from buying food. Yes. Um, you
1: said and...
0: Rajab and Dhul-Hajjah. Rajab is for the Umrah, Rajabiyyah, and dhul hijjah was for the Hajj. These were the only two exceptions. Other than that, they really did not... Um, have a chance to do any business so even to that point you just want to buy food you can't. You know when you read these events brothers and sisters sometimes honestly because maybe of our religion for the sisters because of the hijab sometimes you feel you don't have as many economic opportunities maybe you need to go to more interviews to be accepted And you see many people giving up their faith. Look at these early Muslims, three years starvation, starvation, they did not give up their religion. That's really a lesson for us. What we go through is not one thousandth of what they went through and yet oh no it's difficult to be a Muslim, the hijab is an impediment, I can't get the job I want as quickly as I want and so on and so forth. Look at those early Muslims what they had to go through, three years It's not three days or three months, three years seeing children cry. Can you handle seeing a child cry from starvation? Can you? You can't watch that scene. Imagine what the Prophet and the Muslims, the psychological pain, they had to go through before the physical pain. But they remained steadfast in the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We really live like kings in heaven compared to what those early Muslims had to go through. So, the... End goal was to make Muslims suffer until they'd give up or hand over the Prophet. That was their goal. Now how did they get food during those three years? We know that Lady Khadija was funding, but remember they had monitors. So how did they manage to get food inside the valley? There are two ways. The first way was through the efforts of Imam Ali alayhis salam. He would secretly take the wealth of Lady Khadija. He would secretly go outside. In secrecy he would make some deals and transactions with some fair people in Mecca and he would deliver the food but he had to do this very secretly because had they caught him taking food they would have definitely attempted to kill him. So this was a big sacrifice on behalf of Amir al-Mu'mineen to put himself in that situation. So this was one way. Another way through which they would get food is through the nephew of Lady Khadija, Hakim ibn Hazam. Hukam ibn Hazam was a pagan, he did not become a Muslim, but Lady Khadija was his aunt. So historians tell us that he would deliver food to the valley of Abu Talib. Once Abu Jahl noticed him. And he put a fight with him, he told him what are you doing carrying food because he was carrying food with a servant, they were carrying food to the valley of Abu Talib, he told him what exactly are you doing? He says no I'm just carrying food to my aunt because Lady Khadija was his aunt and it was her money right so I'm just carrying money to my aunt, he's like no 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 that's not gonna fly, you're you're, you're taking money for the Muslims and there was a physical fight over there that happened you know uh, the, the others had to get involved to stop the fight so these were the, the, the ways through which the Muslims would get their food, primarily through the efforts of Imam Ali a.s. secretly leaving, for example, in the darkness of the night. He would leave to get some food for the Muslims and also the nephew of Lady Khadija Hukaim ibn Hazam. Abu Talib during these three years, he was so concerned about the Prophet. Every night when the Prophet was about to sleep, Abu Talib when others slept he would change the place of the Prophet so he would not be known where he would be sleeping because he was concerned maybe somebody ambushes us right now and attacks the Prophet so every night when he sees others sleeping he changes the bed of the Prophet it wasn't a bed he was sleeping on the ground but you know his place that's number one number two he would have all of his sons you know Imam Ali and his other sons he would have them sleep around the Prophet, having the Prophet in the middle and the others around the Prophet Now who would sleep in the Prophet's bed which was normally his bed? Imam Ali alayhi salam. He would tell him you go sleep in the Prophet's bed so that if someone comes and attacks the Prophet thinking the Prophet is there, you'll be there to defend. So Abu Talib was really so concerned about the uh, you know, life of the Prophet, he would surround his own sons around the Prophet to protect his life. Now there's an interesting question over here. We've examined these three gruesome years. Did you hear any mention in Muslim history about one, two, three? Where were they? Those supposedly great companions who became caliphs, what happened to them? Did they sacrifice? Did they starve? Did they go through this? They went through none of this. They had the freedom, come in, come out. They were supposedly Muslims, yeah. They were Muslims at the time because remember this is the year 6-7 of Hijrah. Abu Bakr definitely had embraced Islam. Omar is disputable. Sunnis believe, yes, at this time he was Muslim. We have differences of opinion. Some of our scholars state he became Muslim later. Um, before the Hijrah of the Prophet, others say no, in the sixth year of Hijrah, right before maybe these incidents, um, a few months before this incident he did become Muslim. Remember Beni Hashim were initially targeted by this boycott, so Abu Bakr and Umar, they were not targeted by this boycott, they did not go through these sacrifices, in fact we don't find them even in Sunni sources bringing one plate of food to the Muslims. And in Sunni sources they acknowledge this three-year boycott? Oh yes, this is uh, what I mentioned to you is mainly from Sunni sources, yes. Ibn Ishaq uh, narrates this incident, you have uh, Al-Bidayah wa a, a Sunni book that talks about these events. Oh so, yes, they do recognize this. Now their argument when you ask them, okay where were your leaders? They're like, well they weren't targeted by the boycott, so what do you want them to do? Many Hashem were specifically targeted. Okay fine, they weren't targeted, how come they didn't help? How come they did not help? When you see children starving, the Prophet going hungry for days, you don't deliver food, even if your life will be in danger, then where's your sacrifice? It's all benefiting? Then where's the sacrifice? Where is the sacrifice? You don't find a single historical account, even a weak hadith that states one day, one night they tried to bring a tray of food to the Muslims. What were they doing during those three years? And then they represent the Prophet and Imam Ali who would sleep in the Prophet's bed every night. He would secretly, you know, jeopardize his own life by going out in the darkness of the night getting food. They make him number four. In any case, yes. Sorry, um, it's kind of irrelevant, but I kind of wanted
1: to know the chronology of the nights of Imam Ali so in these years. Would he go to sleep and then wake up in the middle of the night and then try to find someone to buy from?
0: Or would he do that? So obviously, the Imam salam would leave at a time when most people were sleeping. Remember, back then there was no electricity. So most people were sleeping at 12, 1 a.m., right? So we could assume that after people w- had slept the Imam salam, you know, had made himself appear to be sleeping in the Prophet's bed then when things quiet down um, the Imam salam would secretly go outside and bring some food to them but remember he was jeopardizing his life, why? because there were monitors so he had to be very careful not to make a noise, take the appropriate route, know where the monitors are standing because uh, the pagans had actually uh, you know appointed monitors so this lasted for three years now something interesting happened during these three years it's one of the great miracles of the Messenger of God that miracle is the splitting of the moon in the year eight after the birth of the Prophet so we're talking towards the end of this boycott movement while the Muslims were still boycotted in the valley of Abu Talib, the miraculous event of the splitting of the moon occurred. Many, many narrations indicate that during the eighth year of the, uh, of the Ba'tha, members of the Quraysh, they asked the Prophet, they asked him a question. They told him, look, you know, this is, this is continuing for a while. Show us a grand sign that you are a messenger of God. And that you're on the right path. Show us a sign. We want to see it. The Prophet prayed to Allah for a sign. Allah subhanahu taala split the moon in half. They actually saw visibly with their eyes the moon split in half, and then Allah subhanahu taala sealed back the moon. When they saw that, and they realized the Prophet is now saying the truth, and he's achieved victory by responding to their claim. They accuse them of what? Sorcery. Oh, this was magic. This was magic. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveals this verse in the Holy Quran. The hour has drawn near and the moon has been split. And when they see a sign of God, they turn their faces and they say, oh, this is just continuous sorcery. So they rejected this event from the Prophet sallallahu One narration states that when they saw the moon split, initially they thought maybe this is some sort of magic which plays with your vision, right? It's like an optical illusion. They're like, let's wait for other travelers to come from other cities. Muhammad can put a spell on us, but he can't, his spell can't extend to other cities. So let's wait for other travelers to come back. Let's ask them, you know, if they really did see the moon split. So when those travelers came, they asked them, did you see anything unusual on so-and-so night? They're like, yes, we saw the moon split. So they, they now knew the Prophet was telling the truth, yet they accused them of sorcery because they did not want to accept the truth. Now this event is so widely narrated in our hadith books and books of history, such that according to the Sunni methodology in hadith, It's a mutawatir narration. It's a hadith that is beyond any doubt that the Prophet in his lifetime, in the eighth year, the moon was split. In our hadiths, we the Shia, we can't say it's mutawatir, so widely circulated such that it's impossible for them to fabricate it, but it's also so widely narrated in our books of hadith, which gives us confidence that this did happen. So it's one of the miracles of the Holy Prophet Sallallahu Now there's one objection over here. If you remember we talked about the pagans trying to compromise with the Prophet. Remember they asked the Prophet to do, you know, ridiculous things. If you're really a Prophet, then have a river flow here in Mecca. Or erect a ladder and go into the skies, remember? And the Prophet told them, look, I'm a messenger of God. I'm not going to do what your desires dictate. How come in this incident the Prophet did fulfill their request when they asked him to split the moon? Why? A number of reasons. Number one, the Prophet he wants them to see signs of course, but remember he wants to demonstrate to them that I am not the one who decides what sign is shown to you. I'm just a messenger. That's very powerful because... Look, when people are challenging you and they want to kill you and they ask you for proof that you're right, if you can show them a sign, who wouldn't? Obviously you would to defend yourself and to show that you are up to the challenge. The Prophet sallallahu many times they would ask him, he would tell them, look, I don't have permission from God. I'm just a messenger. Sometimes Allah gives me a permission, I'll show you. So he was constantly showing them that this was not out of his choice this is not his religion this is God deciding when a sign is visible when they don't deserve to see a sign so that's why sometimes Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would you know accept their challenge and he would show them a sign and many times he wouldn't just to show that the Prophet is just a messenger Allah is the one who's calling the shots that's number one number two Remember, in the Sheb of Abi Talib, things got so bad for Muslims. You could imagine those Muslims maybe shaking. People stopped joining the religion of Islam because now you've contained the Bani Hashim and the Muslims in a valley. So maybe it required that the Prophet shows them a grand sign. Otherwise, maybe Islam would have you know, been annihilated by these pagans. You needed a powerful sign to show them. And when some of them saw that sign, while many of them rejected, but there were some whose hearts were strengthened. Yes?
1: Did anybody like die because of this boycott?
0: Yes, yes, we have people who died there, especially children. There are children who starved to death in that boycott, absolutely. There were a number of people who died. So... Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does accept that challenge and he shows the splitting of the moon. Another objection is, wait a minute, if this event did really happen, then it must have been a global event. How come like the scientists in the Roman Empire who had telescopes at the time, how come this was not documented? What's the reason? First of all, remember, back then you did not have this global world village where people were in communication with each other and they could easily narrate these events. That's number one. Number two, the narrations indicate the splitting of the moon happened after midnight. Just as the moon had risen. Now, if you go to the Roman Empire at the time, the sun, the moon had not risen yet. So probably it was not in their horizon yet for them to see this. But if you go east to India, there are accounts, even there are manuscripts, by the way, that have survived in history, in which they saw the splitting of the moon in India. So for example, uh, to give you one account of those who were in India, Dr. Zaghloul who's a scientist, he cites an Indian historical manuscript. This is contain- contained in the India Office Library in London, manuscript number 2807-152-173. This is the number of the document in that library. What does it say? It says that this incident was observed by the king of Malabar in Shakrawati Farmus. I don't know exactly where that is in India, are you familiar with where that would be? So basically and that was the starting point for in for Islam spreading in India when the king saw this event and he had heard that a prophet has emerged in Arabia and he's making this claim he's like this prophet is truthful so he embraced Islam the king of that regional area And his people embraced the religion of Islam, and there are historical clues that indicate Islam started in India with this incident. So, if you go further east, there are some reports of them seeing the moon split. Yes, if you go west, the moon had not risen yet, so maybe that's why you know in in Rome they did not observe this uh, incident. Yes. Chinese accounts or Japanese? Nothing has survived history. Remember, sometimes you could have a cloudy horizon. And and our hadith, by the way, indicate it did not last for long; it was just a few minutes. And especially if it's at midnight. Remember, back then people were asleep. I mean, how many people do you find? Maybe just isolated travelers. And who's going to believe them? Who's going to? Maybe this was an illusion.
1: Plus, the moon sets very quick. Exactly, the
0: moon also sets quite quickly, and the splitting did not take long. Now, scientifically. Is there anything to say about the splitting of the moon? There is a lot of scientific discussion on the splitting of the moon. And there are clues that there is a big rift, a 300 kilometer rift in the moon. Which some scientists, especially Muslim scientists, upon examining that, um, they believe this was actually the place where the moon was split from. So there are signs, geological signs, on the surface of the moon, which reveal there may have been a split. Today, today, NASA has confirmed there's a 300-kilometer big huge rift in the moon and they can't explain it, you know, what what geological factors actually um, led to that. You know, the Apollo mission photographs of the Rima Arideus, however you pronounce that, it revealed that there was actually a 300-kilometer rift and we have actually photos of that. You could see it online. There is a rift. Now, NASA, of course, is not going to confirm that this is a miracle of the Prophet, but, you know, I don't know how they explain that rift, but they don't have a plausible explanation as to what geological factors could have, uh, you know, caused that rift. Yes.
1: So, that rift is not geographically local on the moon, is it? is it? Or is it on the full sphere of the
0: moon? Well, 300 kilometers of it is very visible to us.
1: Is the 300 kilometers like, like
0: width? It's pretty it? wide, yes. No, no, no. This is the length of it. Um, the width of it... Uh, You can check, I think it's about, maybe it goes in some areas 9 kilometers deep. So in any case there, you know, we can't say for certain that this rift is due to that split. However, it's, it's an indication. It's an unexplainable rift. Them. and uh, they were basically saying the Prophet had no miracles and then I mentioned this to them and they, and, and, and they denied it but they dismissed it? yeah yeah and I showed them Sunni scriptures and I showed them Shia scriptures because uh, I was telling them how it shows the greatness of the Prophet like Muhammad Ali split the door Musa split the sea, the Prophet split the moon and um, they just
1: rejected it they were I, Muslims I asked, who rejected it? You
0: no know, it was a German Well that explains it all. In any case we have in our history you know the splitting of the moon it's well well documented maybe one day modern science will actually discover a full splitting of the moon that has happened before. Now one final thing about this boycott towards the end of this boycott in the third year after about three years, the Prophet ﷺ receives revelation that that document which these pagans signed and it's concealed in the house of the mother of Abu Jahl. This document has been eaten by termites. God sent termites to eat the paper of the document, except the name of God. Because remember pagans, they believed in God and idols. So whatever was false in that document and attacking Beni Hashim, the termites ate it, only the name of God was kept intact. Allah informs the Prophet. What does the Prophet do? He goes to his uncle Abu Talib. He tells him, my uncle, Jibra'il has informed me that their document has been eaten by termites. Abu Talib comes out of the valley. Pagans are surprised. Ah, Abu Talib, you're giving up. It's about time that you come and negotiate with us. Is it starvation? What took you out of the valley? Is it jur, starvation? He says, no. But I've got a deal that I want to make with you. They're now excited. They thought he wants to, wanted to compromise. Because he was the pillar supporting the Prophet. So when he came, they realized, okay, the Muslims can't handle the situation. He told them, I've got a deal to make with you. But, for me to make this deal, I want you to go and bring the document sealed, don't open it. Bring the document that you signed, put it in front of me and then we'll make the deal. Look at the shrewdness of Abu Talib. They go to the house of Umm Jahal, it's completely sealed. Like if someone had taken a look at the document, you could tell from the broken seal. They brought the document, they placed it before everyone's watching. It's by Masjid Al-Haram, everyone's watching. When they put the document, he told them, look, I've got a deal. My nephew Muhammad has informed me that God has informed him through Jibrail that God had sent termites to eat the document. Here's the deal I want to make with you. If he's truthful, now you open it and see. If he's truthful, that indicates we're on the right path and you should stop your aggression. You can't continue like that. If he's lying, I'll hand him over and kill him, finish him off. Deal? They're like fabulous deal. Because they didn't believe in the Prophet, many of them. You know, the Shaytan plays with their mind. They're like, wow, he's actually giving us a chance to kill Muhammad. And Muhammad doesn't have the knowledge of the unseen. How does he know what's happening in the document? They accept the deal. Everyone's watching. He says, okay, now you guys open the document. All of you who sealed it, you're 40, come. First of all, he told them, do you recognize that this is your document, this is your seal? So later they don't say that this was another document. Before he told them what the deal is, he told them, is this your document, your seal? They're like, yes, we recognize it to be our seal. He says, okay, now open it. They opened it, what did they see? The whole piece of paper was eaten by termites, except the name of Allah. At that point, all the Muslims said, Allahu Akbar. And Abu Talib told them, okay Allah has shown you a clear sign, stop. Tens of people became Muslim. Now Abu Jahl and others said, no, let's still keep the boycott after making a deal that if Muhammad was truthful, we'll let you go. However, there were some members of the Quraysh who couldn't take this anymore. They sided with the Muslims. They, They told Abu Jahl, look, we will no longer respect this document, we made a deal with them and we're not going to enforce the boycott anymore. So the boycott crumbled and the Bani Hashim and those early Muslims, they came out of the boycott and now they were in Mecca. Look at Abu Talib, you know, next inshallah we'll examine the faith of Abu Talib because other schools of thought consider him to be a disbeliever who died as a pagan. Next we'll examine that in detail, but look at the faith of Abu Talib. How much he trusts the Prophet such that he told him, look, if he is lying, kill him. How much faith he had in what the Prophet told him and they consider him a disbeliever. When you have a pillar like that, who believes in the Prophet so much, who makes such a deal, is this a person who did not believe in the message of the Prophet? Who did not believe in the oneness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Yes. Yes this, narr- this incident is narrated in Sunni so, so Sunni historians have documented this incident Now they tell you yes we don't deny Abu Talib supported the Prophet But he just never believed in the one God and in Islam Well we'll examine the uh, discussion on that In any way in any case the boycott is now over But remember the pagans of course they don't stop their persecution and harassment of Muslims A Delegation from Habasha comes to visit the Prophet after this event. Remember Habasha, Abyssinia? The Muslims had sought refuge there. Their king, Najashi, um, he was a very just king who gave them refuge. Ja'far ibn Abu Talib, he was their leader. We talked about that. So during those days, a delegation of about 20 men, as Ibn Ishaq narrates, came from Habasha. Among them were some Christians. They had come. They were led by Ja'far ibn Abu Talib. So Ja'far with a delegation of 20 men, they come to meet the Prophet in Mecca. They find the Prophet in the mosque. They meet him, they speak to him. While the Quraysh is by the Kaaba observing. After the Prophet invites that delegation of Christians to um, embrace the religion of Islam, they believe and embrace the religion of Islam. Abu Jahl opposes them. He attacks them. Imagine Christians coming believing in the Prophet Abu Jahl is now furious he attacks them and he tells them why are you following this magician. They respond those Christians when they see Abu Jahl's stubbornness they respond to him by saying peace be on you, we will not argue you stay on your path and let us do what we want, don't try to change us. In honor of what these Christians did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveals this verse in the Holy Quran. Those whom we have given the book, the Christians. They believe in the Quran and the message of Islam. When they hear nonsense talk by Abu Jahl, they don't argue. They turned away from that nonsense talk. They told them, "Look, just let us do our own deeds, have our own religion, and you have your own religion." Salamun alaykum, la jahili. Peace be on you. We're not going to follow you, ignorant ones. So, a number of Christians, upon meeting the Prophet, they actually uh, embraced the religion of Islam. This infuriates the Quraysh to see more and more people embracing the religion of Islam and you know all the way you know all the way to Habesha people are hearing about Islam and they become Muslims so they were losing more and more power and this infuriated them next inshallah we'll examine the iman of Abu Talib and the role of Abu Talib in solidifying the religion of Islam we'll examine some misconceptions about him they claim there are verses in the holy Quran which say he died as a disbeliever we'll examine that وصلى الله على محمد وآله الطاهرين الله اللهم صل على محمد وآل